Hi, Vince. Good afternoon, Jeremiah. So I thought that today we might talk about security and, and maybe have a sort of conversation between uh, the two sides of an enterprise product uh, as they're trying to make it secure, the developers who are trying to have the initiative to uh, push products out and features out and get stuff in the hands of clients. And then you could play the, uh, a bit of the other side, which is... So I'll be, I'll, be, uh, I'll be speaking as internal IT security since I have been IT security at one point in the past. Now, now my pressures are the organization's control objectives, are the auditors that I have to deal with, and really the pressures of never letting production fail in some data sensitive way. Right. And, that, and you can see the problem there is as people, are, as developers are starting to adopt this agile mindset, uh, trying, to, trying to get products out the door at a much uh, more rapid pace, features out the door, there's a really popular statement, move fast and break things, which is, which is great if you're talking about move fast and break little features. But it's not so great if you're talking about move fast and accidentally expose the entire credit card database to the internet. That's right. So, so my, my organizational uh, objectives and incentives, right, are to never let that happen. And the best way to never let that happen, right, is to slow down your changes and to review those very closely. Yep. And, you know, another thing that sort of a, a little bit of that is uh, often it related to patching there's this very common idea with agile teams of patching of like, you know, always get on the latest version, right? If there's a bug, as long as you're on the latest version, you're sort of moving faster than the hackers. So you'll be fine. Right. But well, on the but security been, side, that's so completely different. Such a history of those patches breaking things that we need to test those first. Right. And those test environments are expensive and it takes a lot of time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a real uh, there's a real tension there, um, and then the the whole idea of DevOps, right, is that you're going to start getting the development team and the operations team together to sort of husband this product together as much as possible, and the developers are just not t traditionally not very good at security, and and the re there's good reasons for that. They're they're not um, their job isn't focused on security. Their job is focused on rolling out features on learning new technologies, getting up to date with things. And, and yes, they're not ignorant of security. They're not, they're not utter fools, but you know, your day-to-day -day activity is staying educated on, you know, new features or, or pushing features out. I would so say there's a whole bunch of education. Involved is, a, is a, is a large discipline. There are many subfields in it security and, and, Developers haven't gone to school for that. They haven't studied that in the same way that we as IT security people have. And, and there's a lot that changes pretty rapidly in IT security. So yeah, and that- Developers to be able to keep up with that as well as all the um, latest JavaScript frameworks, right? Too much. Yeah. That's a real disincentive to, to getting good at it, right? Is if you, uh, it's, it's an enormous topic. There's enormous uh, amounts of, uh, details and, and side paths you can go on to on particular subjects. And then it's going to change a lot because it's constantly evolving as attackers and mitigations are developed. There's all these reasons that, that developers sort of steer away from it and they're incentivized to, to steer away from it. But for this, we have to build some sort of educational security conscious team, which means some way of meeting, of having these two groups meeting together in a way that would make sense.
Now, now I know the developers don't want to ever leak sensitive data, right? They don't want security issues. They don't want vulnerabilities in production, but it happens because they don't always know what to look for. And that's why IT security is there um, to review these things before they go into production, as well as to scan our production systems and trace those logs to make sure nothing bad happens that we didn't even get to test for. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, the one of the problems that is going to happen, right, is you're going to you're going to probably in your organization as you try to get more agile in your delivery processes, you're probably going to be f- the the number of developers far outnumbers the number of security people. That's just seemed I, I've never seen a company where they are anywhere close to each other in size, and the reason for that is the expense, right? Really good security people are. It's too expensive to have as you know enough of them so you could have one on every dev development team or something like that. So you got this mismatch, right? IT security in most places is a centralized team um, that you interact with, and we don't have the resources to to be embedded at the team level throughout the organization. Yeah, so you're going to be dealing with a, that starts like to a, break the, the team uh, autonomy, right? That you're looking for in an agile organization. Yep. And so, I mean, even if you do want to say double the size of the security team or you know, really invest in security, you're, you're, it's guaranteed you're going to be in a situation where, where if the security team is something of a bottleneck, something of a constrained resource that people have to schedule time with. Uh, they're not going to be able to, to sort of have them always there looking over their shoulder being like, you're making a mistake here. You should think about this. You should think about that. So educating the developers is a big part of this. It does make me wonder if, as a centralized security team, to your point, right, I should be creating um, educational materials and tools uh, for those development teams to run, and then focusing on automation to make sure those things happen before they go into production. I do know that I can't keep up with the amount of manual reviews, especially when uh, people want to release code every one to two weeks, let alone if they want to release every day. So you mentioned you mentioned three things there: uh, education, automation, and code reviews. And, and we should probably dig into each of those separately. I think obviously uh, on the education side, it, this is a, a terrifying place for developers to be talking about, right? So, so on part of education is you know you sort of admit ignorance, and then you learn. Uh, the last thing a developer wants to admit is that they're ignorant of something like, oh, I don't know what cross-site scripting is or something. Well, not only have they just admitted to a lack of knowledge about something which is critical to their job, and you could be like, I don't know why we even have you on board. If you don't know what cross-site scripting is, why are you here at a a keyboard? But also they theoretically, every commit they've made for the last 10 years has exposed people to cross-site scripting attacks that they didn't know about. <laughs> so like by admitting ignorance, uh, they're, they're going to be really in a, in a pretty tenuous situation. So you have to be really, it has to be a very uh, trusting environment for them to be able to educate themselves. Well, that's actually a good point, right? It's that I know we have developers in in my organization, right, who've been there for 20 plus years before cross-site scripting was even an issue, right? So as security, right, do I put out um, information to let them know what what has changed, what they need to be looking for, right? Do I do uh, a top 10 every year for training? Yeah. 
I mean, probably as much not. as I probably should. You probably should. Although, I mean, to there, there's enormous resources out there, uh, open source uh, kind of resources that you can take advantage of. And you know, again, if you're in the situation where you're an extremely constrained resource, you should probably offload that as much as possible to something else that's out there. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of um, the OWASP uh, website and the, the OWASP group because of the fact open that they do try to publish security practices. That sounds right. That's I just know them as OWASP, but you you are probably right. <laughs> that's been around for a long time now. Yeah, but they do do a nice top 10 every year. And, you know, you could kind of, hey, guys, let's review this. Let's talk this over because there are probably things on this that you, you know, didn't think were important, but they're sort of rising in the ranks or you never heard of before and they just appeared this year, that kind of thing. So uh, that's a good thing to add to uh, IT security's yearly list, development training, helping developers oh. understand at least the, the top 10 in terms of best practices. Yeah, but there's also a whole bunch of informal training that the, the development teams have to do and that the development team managers have to have to be aware of. So things like pair programming or the sort of more complicated version of that called mob programming, you know, might be really important in order to sort of informally normalize knowledge about what's going on uh, in security because it's really expensive to, to build this education in people. Uh, this is why security people are expensive. And if you're going to have your entire team be kind of deputy security people, they're going to have to get that education in some way. Well, you're saying I can actually partner with uh, development team managers to uh, implement some amount of security training and security practices so that they help meet my objectives for the year? Oh, yes, that would that would be good. Yes, sorry, I didn't realize the lead there. Yes, uh, as, as much as possible, the security team itself should not be training people if they can help it. They should be, they should be putting that burden on the, on the managers for the different dev teams. Uh, helping, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a group effort, but uh, uh, the, it shouldn't be the uh, re responsibility of the security team to make sure that the developers are educated. Well, that's interesting, right? Because securities really work from that central model uh, a lot in, in many organizations. And now that development teams are starting to go agile, nobody's told us, right, what that means for us. And there, there's not nearly as much about, you know, security teams perspective on, on going agile. So yeah. focusing on those reusable tools and getting plugged in at the team level Sounds very good. A lot of a lot of teams haven't tried to do that with IT security for fear of of us bringing down the hammer on their practices in some way. Yeah, yeah. If 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 the security guys you know found out that you're about to release a product, they they might prevent you from <laughs> releasing that product. So it's best to try to avoid them as, as much as possible. Is one way that people act around security, which obviously is not great. So one of the things we all also know in IT security is that sometimes once something is brought to our awareness, we can't ignore it anymore. And there's only so much capacity we have at any given point. So that um, sometimes we avoid hearing about certain things intentionally because it would force action that we just don't have the capacity for. Oh, man, you're, that totally makes sense. And, you know, this is something I'm sure I knew at one point, but, you know, it's, it's fresh to me today. <laughs> so how do, how do you work with... How do you um, sort of get that information across that you're sort of trying to trying to work on these things 
and you want the security guy to have enough information that they can make a decision on it without having to make, without having to know so much that they're somehow implicated in uh, you know, future, future disasters. So some of it comes from a place of mutual trust. If, if I trust that, you know, you take security seriously, that you try to educate your, your developers and your team around security practices, I'm probably going to spend my attention on other teams that, that haven't taken it as seriously. And when you come to me with something, I, you know, I know how to prioritize that because I expect that you've done um, as much as you can do and you're not just throwing something over the wall to me. So that sort of trust is important. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that like, hey, uh, security team, this is the problem we're working on. This is as far as we've gotten. This is the work we've done already to kind of show you that we're actually taking this seriously. And we really could use your sign off or your advice on these two or three elements. And after that, we're, we're in good shape. You're going to get a sort of a better response at that point. Very much. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, so in, in general, I would say, you know, the, the development of the, the security education of the development teams is the responsibility of the development manager. But it's kind of this weird, there's this, there's this cost problem involved in it, in that if you, if you get everyone super educated on security, you've created a much more expensive software development team than you had before. People expect to get paid for their knowledge. But they'll be good at it, but it's an expensive team. Like how where do you where do you do that? And I think that's a very that's a very situational problem that managers have to solve is like how much they want to invest in their teams so that they are good and how much they want to offload to the security team to to say, hey, these are things where we're gonna need your expertise. So part of what I have as a as security manager's responsibility, right, is um, security scanning a lot of our tools, right? And I, um, you know, we have, we have some larger vendors for these sorts of things that we buy these product suites from. And the problem now is every development team seems to have a different technology stack and different tools that they work with. And my, the, you know, the suite I got doesn't integrate necessarily well with all of those things. And I can't figure out how to do it for each of these teams when they're doing these things individually. It sounds like I probably need to say, certain types of code scanning or vulnerability checking needs to be done, but development teams have to figure out how to do that themselves. It'd be great yeah. if they were willing to do that. I think, I think there's, uh, you know, I, I like to talk about sort of a paved road versus an off-road uh, model where, you know, there, there's the, the company approved way of doing things, right? You're going to do, you're going to do it in Java. You're going to have, you know, Claire doing various scanning, you're going to have Black Duck doing various scanning, things like that. Um, and then there's the off-road model where your team wants to do it in .NET, wants to use uh, sneak for scanning or something like that. And like, that's fine, you can do that. But the more that you do, the more that responsibility is on you as opposed to on the, on the uh, security team. And it, I don't know if that works 100% once someone says, can I get the thumbs up so I can connect to the database? And then all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how goofy they've been in their model. At some point, the security team owns that connection to the database and the responsibility is there too. But in well, theory, that helps a bit. But for example, right, when my incentives say I can't have a sensitive data leak, if that development team wants to make changes to their tools or something else, 
do I have a responsibility to go and look at their setup and make sure it's actually secure? And that takes time. Yep, it's absolutely. easier for me to say, you need to keep using Eclipse in the configuration that we had and you can't start using VS Code because I haven't had time to look at what the integration is with our security scanning in that tool. But maybe, maybe a more agile model is if the development team wants to pick that up, they can figure out how to make that stuff work and make my job as easy as possible. Well, yeah, I mean, if they, I, I think you would, that would be an absolute uh, reasonable conversation to have, you know, with the CISO and stuff is to say, hey, listen, we're going to try to adopt these new things, but there need to be stories in place on this new platform uh, related to this new monitoring platform or this new security platform so that they develop out the capacity and that we're included in that development so that we all have the capacity going forward to continue to use this tool. And that should be figured into the cost of adopting the, the tools. So, so I think of that, right? So we have a known good secure stack mm -hmm. and, and the, the stack is changing, right? So developers and, and people are wanting to change this more rapidly than we have in the past. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So there, there is, there is a thing there. 95% of the amount of code that you're you're dealing with on a on a particular product is is not yours, right? The operating system is not yours. The the various tooling is not yours. It's all stuff that you've, you know, you've gotten from Jenkins, you've gotten from you know various Linux providers, you've you've gotten some sort of uh, you know application framework you're using. All that stuff is is um, not yours. And then on top of that, there's a little bit of sort of you know tip of the iceberg is your business logic that you're actually using to make money. All that stuff in that stack, that needs to come from known sources or be scanned and, and verified that it is, you know, some people get them from, from vendors who produce good products, uh, you know, the products they stand behind. Some people do that by getting it just from the open source, but, but running scanners to make sure that this stuff doesn't have vulnerabilities before it gets, gets uh, developed. That includes all the, uh, the uh, Node.js NPM packages that you guys want to use because there's just a zillion of them. All that stuff should be scanned before uh, this thing goes into production. And I know that's kind of a hard thing to say because if you're not doing it, that's a ton of stuff. But it's just, that's where most of the code is. That's where most of the vulnerabilities are. That's where an attacker is going to be like, hey, this uh, struts library, I happen to know, has a big hole in it, and I'm, I'm going to walk right through that and get into the database. And I know that I can do that on 150,000 websites across the world, rather than having to think about your particular business logic on top of it that has some new vulnerability that no one else has seen, right? So they're going to so, go for so that, that security, big right? open door. We want that sort of scanning to happen, but we don't have time to... Um, to build that, and some of our enterprise um, tools don't integrate all that well. So if the development teams are willing to help build that sort of thing, right, it's still got to feed into our remediation and issue tracking dashboards, right? Or yeah, do yeah, the handle that stuff differently now? No, no, it, it absolutely should, you know, the, 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 whatever tooling you're using for that should be something that has an API, some sort of extractable data that you can you can put into some other, that should be probably one of the criteria for picking tools is like, like GUIs are great. Like, hey, I got this tool, it's got all this flash, it's got these cool reports. GUIs are great for like discovering things, for using it the first couple times, first 10 you times. Said, you said flash and, and my, uh, my alarms went off. <laughs> Not that kind of flash. <laughs> 
Yeah, so Groovy's are great, but like you, you eventually need an API, something very automated that you can feed into some other system and, and get a nice, you know, red light, green light, a nice, you know, uh, some sort of metric that you can, you know, oh, we're at seventy five percent. This is good. This is as good as we're going to get this week. Something like right. that. I think as security, right, it would be great if developers looked at those things and that became part of their release process. I would trust a lot more their rapid releases knowing that that was built in and would flag them if there was an issue. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, there's that thing, um, that idea of shift left, right, where you as much as possible are, are testing these things and raising up bugs before it gets, say, to the integration layer, before it gets to the manual QA layer, things like that. Uh, you're trying to hit that as fast as possible. Um, the, the sooner you find a problem, the, the, the faster you're able to do it. That being said, everything in the entire world is now shift left, right? The further, the further left you can shift it, the, the, faster, it's, the faster your development process is going to be. And uh, there is a certain amount of resource constraint, constraint related to that. What it sounds like is, as security, right, if, if I help build some of that automation and shift that work left, maybe I don't have to spend nearly as much time doing code reviews. Yeah. Maybe I can get involved um, when, when there is a, a flag, right? Yeah, some- absolutely. Be, be, because there's, there's definitely, uh, the code reviews is an area where you're going you're gonna to have a lot of uh, bottlenecks, right? If you're going to have a lot of releases, then the, the, the process of code reviewing is going to be a thing that's going to become a bottleneck. And you, as much as possible, want to have automated gates between the, the code check-in and production before you have to do a code review in order to pick, pick these things off as much as possible. We can talk about uh, code reviews a little bit. So code, like, you know, code reviews is a really... Uh, you know, traditional way of, you know, checking for security and good code. But it, the, the more releases you have, the, the, the harder and harder it's going to be to do that. And what's going to happen is that your senior resources or your senior developers, your architects, your managers, your senior security people are going to gradually become bottlenecks for code reviews because that, you know, everyone wants those guys looking at everything if possible. And um, that's just something that you need to be aware of you, using code reviews that, that these people are going to start to get overweight. And you, you should probably as much as possible be like, hey, let's, let's figure out a way to figure out what are big or dangerous commits that need extra code reviews and, and sort of schedule people for the time to do those code reviews. Whereas the smaller ones we're going to hope are going to be caught by these automated processes because you know, not all code reviews are created equal. Yeah. It would actually be great if uh, if your Agile teams gave me even more heads up on that. So maybe start flagging those things when you do your sprint planning before the code is ready, because I don't want to have to slow you guys down. At, at oh, yeah, yeah. And, and on the development side, they absolutely should do that as well, because they um, th- th- there's, there's two or three ways they could solve a particular problem. And one way is going to be much more secure than the other. So if they're talking to, to the uh, security team prior, they're going to do a better job of figuring out how to solve this problem. And it's probably going to be a lot easier to get that sign off because the security team's like, oh yeah, you're doing what I told you to do. I like that. <laughs> this, this looks right. That's definitely something to talk about. I think we should mention it, but like there, there it depends on where companies are in their process, but, but there are things like, um, like release versioning and treating security as bugs and uh, you know, bugs as security issues 
which which if you're an enterprise traditional enterprise company you, you might have problems doing that and that would take an enormous amount of time to get right and you should budget getting that right because that is you, you can't really be uh, secure in an agile fast release way if you're not if you're not doing those kinds of things and that, that's something people have just traditionally pushed off and, and sort of They've, they've sort of sh shambled along in a way that, that doesn't quite work. If you're going to get serious about this, this is one of the things you have to budget for. Well, it's very interesting, the idea that we, we track our security uh, bugs just like any other product bugs. And ultimately, when I think about security's role as, as the organization moves agile, if the team is responsible for a product, then they're responsible for even the security issues in that sort of product. And, and if they think a security issue is low priority, but they've got a feature that is, is a massive thing for, for customers or for the market, maybe it makes sense to prioritize that feature for the good of the company. So should security be there helping to prioritize those sorts of things with, with kind of sprint planning? I mean, it would it would be nice to have them, uh, but again, they are a constrained resource. I don't think you're, you're going to be. It would be reasonable to have them at every single sprint plan, but it might be something where every other, like if it's if it's every week or you know once a month, if it's you know something like that, uh, might be a good idea just to sort of keep them abreast of what's going on, so they can kind of put in a, a recommendation. Well, from, from security perspective, it's easiest for me to say any security bugs we find are always highest priority and need to come before everything else. Um, it, yeah. It's extremely it, – because cause every single security flaw that you can find, generally, you can kind of work back to and then you've owned the database. You know, <laughs> like you can step through some sort of crazy uh, Mission Impossible type of process and be like, and then – and then they have the data, you know, and That's then you're right. done. So, right through your Swiss cheese. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, um, I, this is, I think a, a problem where the security security team, especially if they're going to the cloud at the same time, everyone else is trying to, to trying to get to the cloud, the, the amount of holes that, it, that appear to be open on a cloud deployment compared to what's in a, in a protected data center is, is terrifying. Right. And so you, you have this, you have a security, you can have a security team who's just like, look, I don't know what I can really in good conscience agree to from this entire behavior. Um, so it takes a while to educate them on that. Well, it's great that, uh, that you developers, right, understand some of the pressures that we're under, right? They want to they cut our budget, but are asking us to do twice as much work. Maybe that sounds familiar. <laughs> well, right. And I mean, the solution, the solution to that to some degree is sort of like uh, infrastructure as code and automated uh, configuration as much as possible. So you can just say, hey, you know what, we have these, we, we have these tools, automation tools, uh, you know, the, the most basic ones are like Bash and PowerShell, and then you get up to like Chef, Puppet, and Ansible and things like that, which can configure your systems uh, pretty well. And if you put those in as bugs, because like in the cloud, configuration errors may be even more dangerous than uh, bugs uh, or, or code errors, right? Because nobody's really foolproofed all the cloud products yet, right? Like, you know, the, the very famous incidents that come out, you know, every six months, Not every year. Just, that we don't hear about some new uh, S3 data being leaked. 
Yeah, S three buckets are just there for the taking, according <laughs> you know. So, or somebody yeah. trying to mine Bitcoin uh, by spinning up a lot of our EC two instances. Uh, I think the first thing you developer checking uh, credentials into uh, public GitHub. That's I think that's step one, right? The first thing you do when you when you build a cloud product is you check your credentials into a public GitHub. <laughs> then you go forward from there. Yeah, I mean, so so as much as possible, having these automated tools that can kind of track the configuration and you, you put bugs in on those tools so you can change the configuration it is one way that the security team and the development teams can sort of get together and agree on how they're going to solve problems, how they're going to sort of get this thing to move forward in a way that everyone can be happy with. Oh, and you know, another thing kind of related to the infrastructure side of things is sort of these the more advanced deployment patterns that you can have, like uh, blue-green deployments and canary deployments. Now, this is something that's really interesting. Sorry. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like uh, <laughs> the dogs have opinions on this. Poor guy's got a cone on his head today. Oh, man. He hates it, so he's going to rub it against everything he can. My dogs are actually out getting uh, groomed today, so they're going to come back kind of looking half naked. So as security, I love the idea of uh, blue-green or even canary deployments, you know, knowing that, that it's not all or nothing. Uh, as much as possible, you want to, before it even gets to production, you maybe want to take some of that production message flow and, and push it through the new system to sort of see if it can, can handle it, if it breaks in some way. Yeah. You want to maybe with a canary deployment, just sort of get 5% of the, of the um, production clients on the new product and sort of see if it starts to act funny. You can identify things at a low volume in a way that when it gets to be high volume, it just becomes terrifying. There's so much stuff going on. You don't, you don't know what's right and what's wrong or anything like that. Should we talk about what blue green and, and canary are? Do we sort of assume listeners know what those are? Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about those a little bit. Certainly, and, and the way it relates to IT security, right, is availability of the application. It's okay. very easy for us to think about, you know, the things that, that take down our applications are, are hackers breaching systems, but mo most often, right, it's technical problems, and, and this helps us solve those technical problems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a canary deployment is you're, you're just going to have a couple of uh, one or two people or 5% of traffic or 10% you know, of traffic going to the, the latest version of the product and, and the rest of the product traffic going to the, um, the, the so let's say you're, you know, you're currently on version five and you want to release version six. 90% of traffic goes to version five, 10% of it goes to version six. And they both, they, they both feed back because you're using microservices. They can both feed back to the, to the database server and, and update and things like that. And that gives you the chance to see how version six is doing before you kind of push all of your traffic onto version six and then gradually, hey, let's up it to 20% on version six, 30%, things like that. That's just, that's sort of how canary deployment works. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure you can make changes to our uh, production load balancer without going through cab. <laughs> you might need to have a software defined uh, network in order to make this, make this work a little bit better. Well, that's actually a good point, right? Is that um, newer platforms allow development and product teams to change those things at a product level rather than through some larger and more risky global configuration. Yeah, if you want to know, if you want something that the developers are even more ignorant about than security, you can uh, talk to them about networking. 
<laughs> It'll be like, oh God, I specifically went into development so I wouldn't have to know about networking. Um, so, uh, but yeah. And then, and then on the blue green side is like you, you have like, you know, product version five is running in production and version six is completely stood up, uh, ready to go on a completely different set of servers. And you just, you have a load balancer that points to version five. And then the next moment you have a load balancer point to version six and version five is blue and version six is green and version six is up and running and you're good to go. And then gradually, as you decide to release version seven, you you create version seven where version five used to be, you know, kind of tear down version five, create version seven, and then switch the load balancer over to version seven. So they're, they've, they're, they're fully up and tested and ready to go before you switch the production feed over to them. So. Well, I can say as, uh, as security, right, I'm, I'm a lot more confident that developers can make, uh, make production uh, releases knowing that there's a great rollback. That's, oh yes, right. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I'm a lot less impacted by availability and outages, knowing that that rollback is there. But those are again, those are very hard things to set up, um, especially uh, related to database upgrades and rollbacks, because you can kind of see it working on the application side for a load balancer. But you're gonna you're gonna upgrade the database, and the database is gonna have to handle version five traffic and version six traffic, and then you might have to roll it back things like that, that can take a long time to develop and you should sort of plan for the, that part of it as well. Another area where, you know, developers are not particularly great at is sort of getting a flood of monitoring related to security tools and trying to figure out what of that flood of alerts is good and what is bad. So that's definitely something that uh, takes a little time to figure out as well. And you're going to have bugs related to Oh, I got this monitoring. It wasn't working well. How do I how do I get it to work uh, properly? So, big takeaways for me um, as security is that developers care about security, and if they are on teams that own products, they have more responsibility that they're willing to take on for the security of those products. That I should let you guys start to implement scanning and other tools at the development level, and I don't have to do it all as a gating process and you're going to partner with me on uh, on building some of that automation and making sure your your uh, your code is compliant uh, yeah i'm also going to take away that you know you're you're moving towards tools that that make it easier to do deployments and rollbacks and uh, and that monitoring for these things is getting better and better and you're willing to work with me to help set up that sort of monitoring for your application because you care about how it's running. So, so what yeah, are your thoughts uh, as, as a development manager? I mean, I think, I think the most important takeaways for a development manager are you know, sort of work, a, a better working relationship with the security team in order to help educate the developers. I think as the team becomes more engaged with security problems and more understanding of security problems, they're in tune going to do what developers just naturally do, which is find more and more tooling and automation to try to try to make this problem more automated and something that they, they don't have to worry about is sort of in the background. And they in turn need to socialize these back with the security team because all of this stuff, you know, if you ever, if you ever wanna um, spend some time Googling security tools, there are more than a few of them and it's going to take a team effort to educate on how this stuff's going to going to go forward. 
So um, it's definitely one of those things where uh, the, the developers can give back by you know, also assuming that the security team would love to, to learn about the newest stuff. They, you know, they, they only have only so many minutes in the day and they may not be able to, to see things that are coming on the horizon that might help them out. Well, security appreciates your partnership and uh, look forward to collaborating more in the future. All right, thank you very much. Okay. If you like the show, please show us some love on the Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. The views and opinions are solely those of the speakers and not the opinions of any third party. The same holds true for guests, if we ever have guests. We don't guarantee completeness or accuracy. We don't assume responsibility or liability for the information. This content is provided for general information only, and if you choose to rely upon it, you do so at your own risk. This should not be considered professional advice. Thank you.